Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. This episode features a short lecture entitled Tribes, which was recorded at the Academy Summer School 2019. It's the ninth in our series Culture Wars, Then and Now. The lecturer is Ben Cobley, author of The Tribe, The Liberal Left and the System of Diversity. In his lecture, Ben examines how the progressive liberal left and what he calls a system of diversity have come to dominate contemporary society, and he talks about some of the intellectual inspirations behind the book. The title of, of this talk was given as, uh, as tribes. I mean, you can see it's the new tribalism. But I, I hope I, I've kind of finessed it in a little way to sort of introduce how there is that sort of element of, of actual tribes in plural, because, of course, the book is called The, the Tribe, The Liberal Left and the System of Diversity. And um, So the tribe that I'm talking about is the liberal left or in a longer sort of title is the progressive liberal left. And this is just, it's a convenient term. I'm not completely happy with it. So basically, yeah, uh, what I'm going to do is, is firstly just explain very briefly some of the arguments in the book, the core arguments in the book. Um, but then after, so, so what the system of diversity is, how it works. Uh, but then after that, I'm going to take a, a different sort of angle and approach it through basically my intellectual influences or major intellectual influences in writing the book and try and uh, approach the arguments of the book through them. Um, so firstly, on the system of diversity, uh, yes, next, next slide. So this is the, you know, the complete basics. We're all familiar with this type of stuff. And in, in writing the book, I, this actually took ages to put together, this list, in terms of what it was actually describing. And you can see it's just so basic favoured stroke protected identities, unfavoured identities. And that's what I thought it came down to, is identity politics is just basically it's favouring some groups and not others. So the book, it's about really um, how certain forms, you know, attached to the liberal left or progressives have, of identity politics have, have come to dominate or get increasing traction in our society at kind of all levels now. And I think in the book, actually, I... I really I underplayed it, sort of how, how big and strong and sort of powerful these, these forms of politics are. Better to underplay than overplay, I think. So, and it's, it's really about the, how the progressive liberal left is a sort of an identity group in its own right, has, has sort of overseen this sort of domination within institutions, but also just outside in, in general discourse. So, I mean, the groups that you see here, uh, favoured straight, unfavoured identities, I wouldn't define these as tribes, but the liberal left as an identity group in its own right sort of does treat them in that sort of way as, as sort of tribal groupings in a sense. So, you know, women count as a political, a meaningful group uh, for politics, for example. Now, of course, when you have tribes, you have tribal leaders. So next, next slide. And this is... As I, as I conceived it, sort of the, the basic power relations going on in what I call system of diversity. And again, I'm, that, that term, system of diversity, not completely happy with it, but it will you know, do it's as good as anything. So if you look on the left here, 
the administration of diversity, that's an, another way of explaining, say, the liberal left or progressive liberal left. And the way, the way it tends to work is, uh, you know, by favouring groups, you are basically outsourcing favour or authority to representatives of these favoured groups. This is how the, these forms of politics work in practice. So we're looking at feminists, we're looking at um, gay rights activists, uh, but really anyone can, can sort of pick up on this. And you know, if you're familiar with the, the language and how it kind of fits in, we can all sort of pick up, as long as we have the right um, identity group, of course, for the most part. So on the other side, you have members of, of the groups who again, to sort of fit into this system and to benefit off it, you know, through the administration of diversity, you've got actual money and power, jobs, everything going into here. And they generally sort of can pass out to, to members of their group. But to benefit from that type of thing, I mean, generally you're going to have to fit in with what those, what those leaders are, are promoting, what their politics are. So if, for example, you say, uh, as a woman, I'm not a victim at all, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not represented by you as a feminist, for example, then automatically you come out of this sort of systemic uh, relationship there. I think uh, we're going to move on to the next slide. So this is uh, the first of the influences I, I was talking about, um, which is Chantal Mouffe, and this lovely little book she wrote called On the Political, and that's, that's using uh, an idea from Carl Schmitt, a right-wing uh, philosopher, quite a controversial one, and Chantal Mouffe is on the left. Uh, but she said she couldn't find really much inspiration from left-wing philosophers, so she turned to him and conceived this quite quite a good way of looking at things. So, I mean, as, as, as Mouffe says in this book on the political, for Schmidt, the criteria of the political is the friend-enemy discrimination. It deals with the formation of a we as opposed to a they, and is always concerned with collective forms of identification. Now, in that, those sorts of terms then, you know, the basic unit of politics is, is a group. To, to make politics, you're, you're joining with other people to, to engage in collective activity, and that automatically creates a, a contrast with those people who are not in the group. So it's really a, a description how basic social life works, I think. So, I mean, the political, it's a... It's a domain of conflict, really, by its nature. Uh, the domain of winning and losing. It's, you know, it's our everyday existence, which I think our, our public life doesn't really often address sort of adequately. They, they, they can't really kind of conceive of it, except for when it comes to obvious occasions like elections and, and referenda. So, I mean, in, in looking at this and using this, this sort of idea of the political, I, I started to see... Uh, or conceive of, of politics or, or conceive of the idea really of political space uh, or invoking Heidegger, who's going to come later, sorry for more Heidegger, um, existential space. It's where, it's where significance occurs, where meaning is, like I say, where people win and lose. So Chantal Mouffe, she contrasts this idea of the political with the rationalism of uh, liberal progressive discourse which typically claims a sort of consensus that will transcend uh, the we-they distinctions, which are the basic sort of, sort of units of politics. Another way of, of, of looking at it, which I, which I use more, is, is absolutism, you know, of, of rationalism, that there is an, an ultimate answer 
which is uh, rationally derived and that these experts have complete access to it. And if you, you do not go along with them, you kind of appear as illegitimate, uh, irrational, and, and to be rejected. So she sees that as a, as a dangerous fantasy because it places politics itself outside the political contest. Um, as she says, every consensus is based on acts of exclusion, every consensus. So the fully inclusive consensus that a lot of the people, I would say, administrating, sorry about the word, our public life, are sort of doing this type of thing. And they're, they talk in the language of, you know, a sort of fully inclusive type situation that they're aiming at or what they're, what they're providing, what they're administrating. But of course, this excludes the apparently irrational. Um, and I would say that in a certain way, it's a particularly aggressive form of exclusion in terms because it invokes a, a very strong element of authority, uh, of rational authority. So the relevance to the system of diversity of, of this for me is that the politics of diversity uses this language of inclusivity and preventing discrimination, uh, of overcoming discrimination and prejudice and, and kind of reaching a, the right state of things very, very extensively. However, in practice, of course, uh, by doing this, they are excluding and discriminating aggressively themselves. It's just the nature of the, the beast in politics. So denunciations like far-right, racist, Islamophobic, etc., place opponents beyond the frame of acceptable public life. Now, most of, of in practice, most of the way the, the reality of, of, of how this is happening does gather around the politics of identity. It's... it's it's attacking their opponents for, for apparently victimizing these favored protected groups that I was showing earlier. So based around things like skin color, gender, religion in the case of Islam and other things. Now this is part of a wider attempt to show solidarity for those same groups um, and favoring on the basis of victimhood. From MOOF, I, I, I saw a, a sort of a we stroke us in this. Uh, of a group sort of forming around, around this politicization of identity. Uh, and it distinguished itself by favoring these certain groups as victims. Uh, the victims is very important, of course. I started to see how this approach has come to dominate organized politics in our country and elsewhere. And um, I mean, merge, merging, I think as well, it, it, it merges with the progressive liberalism uh, that Chantal Mouffe herself attacks, uh, which kind of presents its own partiality, its own politics as sort of absolute. So its way of relating to the world must be the way the whole public sphere works. Otherwise, we're in a terrible situation. In this way, uh, one's, own, owns one's own boundaries become those of the whole political community, narrowing the frame of all possible politics. The language activists use it's moralistic, it's absolutist. It's a way of removing opponents from public life. And I mean, what the book's about really is this is, this is working, it's winning, uh, it's successful. So next, uh, next slide. So now we move on to Karl Popper and, and progressive politics. Now the claims of a lot of the identity activists, of course, we all know is they're pretty dubious a lot of the time and they're not really referring uh, to factual evidence or if they do, it's in a very partial manner. The gender pay gap is a very a good example of that. Also in the book, I talk about um, 
Well, I quote Sadiq Khan, who uh, gave a speech to Operation Black Vote a few years ago, and he, he really maxed up uh, the victimhood that um, non-white people were experiencing in this country and ignored all of the, the evidence of actual non-white, non-British people doing very well in, in British society, notably, notably British Indians and Chinese, of course, but also Bangladeshis, Pakistanis to a large extent, Africans too. When we, when we talk about, say, the gender pay gap, racial disadvantage, etc., this is, this is exerting in a basic level a form of knowledge. You know, it's, we know that there's a big gender pay gap, therefore you need to act to stop it. And this is the way, typically, that we get authority in our society is through knowledge. Uh, very simple. But where does that authority come from? Now, this is where Karl Popper comes in. He's he was primarily a philosopher of science. Um, his, his main book on politics, the, the Open Society and Its Enemies, published immediately after the Second World War, so very much reacting to that sort of situation, Marxism, stroke Nazism, fascism. That's what he was, he was really addressing. Uh, but in that book, he turned his scientific understanding uh, to politics and social theory, which was claiming uh, scientific authority in a, in, a, in a large sense. And he came up with this idea of historicism to describe a lot of the theories that were happening from Hegel, from Marx, uh, also from Plato back in the day. So, I mean, historicism is basically it's, it's knowledge of history. It's knowledge of the future, that includes. Uh, for pro pro progressives, it's the future's getting better, we know that. And then for others, for pessimists, it's getting worse. Uh, so for, for Hegel and Marx, for example, the progress of history is, and for progressives nowadays, most of them, history is going in the right direction. It's going in our direction as well. One, one little thing which is rather important, that this historical prophecy, as he described it, um, it's used to justify power. That's, that's its basic purpose. You know, it's like, I, we know what's going to happen. It's kind of a soothsaying type thing, you know, or being a prophet. Now, Popper described this approach as so much a part of our spiritual atmosphere that it is usually taken for granted and hardly ever questioned. And I think this is very true today, maybe even more so than then. And in, this, in these types of narratives, history has a meaning and a purpose. It's, it's bringing us towards the promised land or taking us into um, a terrible situation. So for, for progressives like Marxists, um, or some Marxists, I, sh I should qualify, uh, you have that continual improvement aligning with an increase in their power. And practically, that's, that's the way it works out. Now, Popper saw that this meaning and purpose was given a lot of animation by associating it with, uh, with identity groups. So he called it uh, the doctrine of the chosen people destined to inherit the earth. So for, for Marxists in his time, the working class served in this, in this type of role, or the proletariat. Uh, for Nazis, it was racial ethnic groups. So this is identity politics integrated into the story of destiny and progress, but giving it a, a much bigger political power, a, a purpose, an animation. Uh, so, so, I mean, looking at the system of diversity in re relation to this, um, I mean, for me, looking at contemporary progressive politics, you know, you're seeing more or less the same type of thing, maybe not so codified and, and talked about so overtly. But 
these different flavor groups now are, are kind of serving in that quasi-historical chosen people sort of role, and they're going to redeem our society in some way. But, of course, you never get any specifics about how that's going to happen, and that typically was the same for Marxist historicism, for example. So identity politics provides the meaning and purpose to, to progress. It also involves other people. It's not just us. It's not just the intelligentsia, the, the administrators, the, the bosses. Uh, we're actually we're involving these other people as well. So it, gives, it establishes certain social relations there that, you know, I would say in a certain way they're politically powerful, so they're working. So um, progressivism really provides authority, you know, that knowledge of history which is moving in our way. And through this authority, I'd say the liberal left sort of emerges as an overseeing class in, in that sort of traditional old sense. And that knowledge of history, of course, cannot be falsified because it hasn't happened yet. You have to make specific predictions about time to be proved wrong, and typically people don't do that. Right, we're going to move on to um, the lovely Heidegger um, for a short period of time. Um, I'm going to spend a very short time on this. Uh, uh, but first of all, I should say, you'll, you'll see at the top, Heidegger stroke Dreyfus. Now, in, in, in writing the book or, or before it, I, I used to, um, well, I spent a lot of time li listening to podcasts of this, uh, a professor, Hubert Dreyfus, who was at, the, uh, at Berkeley in, in California. And he, he died a couple of years ago. Um, but 10 years ago, he, I, th I think maybe as a legacy, he he recorded for podcasts uh, all his lectures on Heidegger and a lot on existentialism. On Heidegger alone, there's, I think, more than 60 hours. And for, you know, better or worse, I've listened to every hour at least once. Um, and they're, they're wonderful. He's a, he was a lovely character. Uh, so, I mean, he, so he was a main influence as much as Heidegger himself, his interpretation of, of Heidegger, and especially being in time, Division One. So for Heidegger, um, you kind of heard, uh, I think, from Tim Black uh, very briefly that there are, you could say, three main uh, forms of being for Heidegger. The first one we see there is Dasein, which literally means uh, being the there, which is uh, to say it's situated. You know, the nature of the human being is that it's situated in a world. It's thrown into a world. So we see that Dasein... The, the nature of Dasein, it's an entity for which that being is an issue. That is the Dasein which is situated. Uh, it's, it, you know, the nature of us is that we make an issue of, of our lives, simply for Heidegger. Now, identity politics, you see there, it fill, fulfills this meaning, of course, uh, that the life already has a meaning, it must have a meaning for us. And identity politics is a great way of doing that. It's so easy and convenient, it's so familiar. Uh, and we can see with activists, a lot of them do struggle with mental health problems, but you certainly can't say that their lives lack meaning. We may not like the meaning, but uh, there is a certain um, you know, collective support there, of course, as well. Presence at hand. Uh, now, this is really what Heidegger sort of thought of uh, as, as the conventional... Uh, well, I, well, maybe I should say I, I think of as the conventional sort of materialist uh, theoretical approach, which is kind of conventional in you know most most uh, intellectual discourse, really. Uh, so it's it's kind of seeing the nature of of things, of beings, through their, for example, material properties, their weight, 
um, you know, you know that that type of that type, you know mathematical accessible knowledge. So you know, Descartes was the classic example he he critiques. Um, so looking at that uh, conventional theoretical <coughs> attitude, seeing the being of objects, mathematical terms. So in terms of diversity politics, this this politically it kind of aligns very nicely uh, with identity politics because that's what identity politics is. It's picking up on physical characteristics and giving them meaning. Um, and so I think this identity politics aligns quite nicely to modern intellectual authority. It fits in. And also it's kind of familiar to technocratic ways of being. Uh, for example, the government you know, that they can actually measure how many women and how many non-white people they've got in their organization. It can give them a purpose rather than maybe like educating people or something like that, which is a lot more difficult. So next slide. Now, readiness to hand is the, is, is the, is the core, I think. Uh, I'm going to spend a, a bit more time on this. Um, so for Heidegger, when, when something becomes familiar, in Heidegger's terms, it, it becomes ready to hand. So like the hammer, the nature of the hammer, the being of the hammer for Heidegger is not that it's a wooden shank with an iron blob on it. It's that it's a hammer and it's there for hammering. The, the material properties of it on their own describe very little, give it very little meaning. Its meaning is that we are familiar with its role in our lives to, to hammer with. So in this way, the hammer has significance, it has meaning. Now, the relevance to diversity politics is that, of course, that I think skin color, for example, gender, and these other identity categories can appear in this sort of similar way. They're ready to hand, they're easy to use, they're familiar. So in that sense, I think they, they appear in a certain way as, as like tools, as, as technology to be used. For activists, for example, non-white people, women, immigrants, gay people, for example, they often serve in this type of way as, as kind of human resources, you could say. Uh, and that, that goes back to the, sorry, the old diagram we had of um, how power sort of operates through the system. Um, the, the, the group of favoured favored identity group um, down in the corner, they are, their role is to, is to align with their representatives. If they don't do that, they're not ready to hand. They're, stand, they're standing out, uh, and you know we, we know practically in real life if you're if you stand out like that against these people, you know that what you get in return can be a lot worse than it is for me, maybe as a white male, because you're a traitor. So in this way, I think this whole sort of world of identity, of, of these categories of identity, appear, appears to be ready to hand. It, as familiar to all of us. I think we, probably most of us in the room are just, you know, just accustomed to it. You know, it's almost like the air we breathe. And it makes, it makes complex social phenomena appear simple and easy to understand. And I think this is a core strength of the politics of diversity, is that it's so simple. It's so easy to understand. You don't need any, any sophisticated understanding as well. You can just fit into it and and get on with it. Now, this brings me on to, um, to this little notion of idle talk. Um, now, for Heidegger, this is, the, this is the talk of gossip, of careless chatter, 
of, as he calls it, passing the word along. Um, it's not concerned with the substance of what is said, but with how the talker anticipates it being received. It's, it's normal, everyday conversation that we all engage in. Uh, so in that, in that sense, I, I, I sort of, for me, it appears you know, very much like ready to hand in, in, every, in everyday conversation, in that it makes stuff appear familiar, known, and understood, so we can use it without much effort and, and align to the people around us and have a comfortable existence. Now, this is um, it's quite similar to uh, Harry Frankfurt's uh, lovely little essay I really recommend if you haven't read it, called On, on Bullshit. Uh, you know, I think you can get it. On, you can get it online. Certainly, you, you, you used to. Uh, so just look it up, and it's only I don't know, 15, 20 pages or something like that. Really worth reading. And in in, in Frankfurt's sense, bullshit. It may be accurate, but that's not the purpose of it. It's not like lying when you know you know the truth and you say something else. The purpose of bullshit is is not truth at all. It's, it's, you know, it's really political in character. It needn't be, uh, say, party political or anything like that, but just in everyday social life to, to make us sort of align and get on with people around us. So in that sense, I, I would say it's idle talk, it's superficial. You know, it makes things easier, helps us to fit in. Now, the relevance to the, to the system of diversity thing is that, the, you know, like I say, I kind of said before, this... The talk of progressive ID politics is now so familiar, such an accepted way of speaking. It's everywhere. Um, and it's taken on very much, I think, this sort of general, mostly superficial aspect where people, when they're engaging it, when they denounce, I mean, I know some people in this room have experienced your denunciation themselves. And a lot of them, they just completely detach from the actual reality, the facts. And they will say something which is demonstrably wrong and others will pick it up and it will just become a big sort of phenomenon of, of denunciation around the world without any reference at all to actually what was said or done. And that's very regular now. So yes, in, in denunciations, we rarely find any attempt to engage uh, from what is actually being said. Now this kind of goes back to Chantal Mouffe, I think, as well in that it's fundamentally political in character. Its purpose is to win. Uh, truth serves, in, in a sense, it's to be used, but covered up, of course, when it's not convenient. Um, now, identity-based ideology, it fits in well because it's so simple. We all know the rules, as I said. So I'm gonna draw to a close with a last nod to Heidegger and, and this discipline of phenomenology. Now, Dreyfus explains in his lectures that in, in explaining social, social matters, he just keeps on repeating in these lectures about Heidegger's always return to the phenomenon of what is actually happening. And this is what I tried to do in my book. And it just, it's just the most basic thing ever, but it's, it's a lot more difficult in practice, largely because it, it pushes back against our instincts to fit in and to take things easy and uh, to use language which is available around us. To describe what is accurately, describe accurately what is happening is, is actually really difficult a lot of the time, especially when it involves our feelings. And of course, you know, trying to, trying to do this in the book and just basically describe accurately how this diversity politics worked, um, 
it set up a natural contrast with what I was writing about. Um, I, I, I came to sort of conceive this uh, as a sort of contrast between actual truth and what we might call social truth. Now, social truth suits the superficiality of idle talk and the simplicity of ideology. Actual truth is often messy, difficult to get at, uh, you know, things leading each way can get us into trouble. It's much easier just to say an, an accepted narrative and interpretation and go with that. Now, I tried to get, get a grip on this subject matter by, by recognizing the relational nature of human being, partly from Heidegger, I'd say. Uh, and in this understanding, assertions never stand alone. They never mean just what the words themselves say. They fit into a whole ecosystem of responding and relating to each other. And in this sense, society itself appears as a system of relations between people and institutions. And that's how I came up with this idea of the system of diversity and that our society is reproducing itself using uh, these idioms and, and favored, unfavored distinctions, etc., of progressive identity politics. Now, this dogma has been obviously appearing a lot more in front of us uh, seemingly more every year, certainly maybe the last six years, I'd say. It's really sort of ramped up. And it demands a response. With social truth, our instinct is to give way. It's, it's too problematic, it's difficult, we'll get into trouble, we might lose our jobs, completely understandable. But I think many of us are starting to realise that this is not good enough, that some of our best traditions and institutions are under threat from the demands of identity politics, including intellectual inquiry, uh, education, and the university. So I think in responding, our task is, is twofold. It's one, it's political and it's intellectual. The political side is about organizing to protect what we, what we love and what we value. But also, there's that aspect I go back to, and this is phenomenology of describing reality accurately, trying to trying to actually describe what's going on as simply as we can. And that's what I tried to do in, in, my, in my book. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Ben Cobley give the ninth lecture in this series, The Culture Wars, Then and Now. We'll return soon with another lecture in the series from Tamandra Harkness, who'll be looking at the personalised century. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review, which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website, www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman who edited this podcast series.